We continue the shear in Navi, Hebrew history. Well, as we said throughout the history of the Jews, after Yeshua's passing, there were a series of different judges who ruled. Every time that the Jews left Hashem to worship idols, Hashem sent different nations to attack them, to hurt them. And then a new judge arose. For a while there was peace. It was quiet. The Jews returned to Hashem. As long as that judge was alive, the Jews had peace. Once the judge passed away, the Yitzhahara, the Satan, dragged them down again. They found themselves in hot water. And until they came crying back to Hashem, and then a new judge again arose. Now we come to the part where the worst of the enemies of the Jews came into power. These are the Plishtim, the Philistines. And they hurt the Jews more than any tribe before them. The Jews cried so bitterly to Hashem that Hashem now sent them an unusual leader. Yet the Torah itself gives us a full chapter on the story before his birth because he was so unusual. The story begins with Manoach and his wife. These were the parents of Shimshon Hagibor, the next judge, the next ruler of the Jews. Manoach and his wife were sitting in a garden. His wife was sitting separately and an angel appeared before her. This angel gave her instructions. He told her that from her they will come forth, she'll give birth to a son who will bring the light of victory to the Jews. But this son is going to be holy. He's going to be a Nazir, a Nazirite. A Nazir, Chumash tells us, is a whole Gemara called Nazir. A Nazir means one who is forbidden to drink wine. He is Kadosh Lashem, he's holy for the sake of Hashem, just as a Kohen is. This Nazir has additional laws, he cannot drink wine, he's not permitted to cut his hair during the time that he is a Nazir, and generally, a regular Nazir is not allowed to go to a cemetery or go near a dead body just as a Kohen. In the case of Shimshon, he would not be a regular Nazir. Regular Nazir means one who declares himself as a Nazir for a good reason. He wants to abstain from wine. He wants to cure himself of alcoholism. He declares himself as Nazir, and thereby he cannot drink wine under any circumstances. But that Nazir has these three rules. No wine, no cutting hair, no going near a dead body. The case of a Nazir Elohim, that means a Nazir who was declared so by Hashem, he has only two of the three rules. Case of Shimshon was in a zero Lakim. He cannot drink wine, he cannot cut his hair, but he could go near dead bodies, and this was very necessary. He had to do the killing of the Jewish enemies. So now this angel said to the wife of Manoach, who is nameless in the Torah, in Navi, there's no name given here, just the wife of Ashes Manoach. He told her that she is supposed to begin the holiness for the sake of her son. In other words, she is not supposed to drink wine during the entire period of her pregnancy, so that he will be born as a Nazir, even from the time he was conceived, not just the time that he was born. These instructions she received, and then she ran to tell her husband about the fact that an angel, that an Ishel Kim, a heavenly person, had come and had told her these instructions. She's going to give birth to a special type of son. He wasn't sure that this was an angel. He thought perhaps it was a, a Navi, a prophet. And so he davened, he prayed very hard to Hashem. Hashem, please send this messenger back 
so we can clarify the instructions you gave my wife. We've very hard, and again Hashem sent this angel to the wife of Manoah, apparently she was greater than her husband. But when she saw this angel, she ran to summon her husband. He came out, and he spoke to the angel this time. He asked for further instructions. The angel told him about the laws, the rules of Nazir, and what they're supposed to do until the time she gives birth. Onoach was very impressed by this, and he asked the angel, What is your name? So that we can know if you come to us again, we'll go to recognize you. The angel said, I cannot give you my name because my name is hidden. I don't have a name. Every malach, every angel is called by a name that signifies, designates the type of mission he's on. So each mission is a different type of mission. Only I can say is that I'm an angel and if you want to offer me food, I will definitely reject it. No circumstance I accept any food. If you want to offer food, offer it as a sacrifice to Hashem. This Manoach did. He brought out a goat. He offered as a sacrifice, and as the flames rose up, the angel rose up in these flames too, and disappeared heavenward. Shortly afterwards, Shimshel was born. This is a very short chapter. Let's delve into this chapter a little more deeply before going into the story of Shimshel. But first, let's get the names of these two people, these major characters in the story. Manoach and his wife. The word Manoach is mentioned clearly in the Navi. His wife's name is not. The Gemara says, we learned recently in Baal Basra, that there are certain people, Apikursim, skeptics, who like to ask taxing questions, difficult questions of the rabbis, to catch them. One of the questions they ask is, what is the name of Manoach's wife? What is the name of Shimshon's mother? And the Gemara says, though this information might not seem so important, the rabbis of the Gemara reveal this name, so that in case this question is ever asked, you would have the answer to reply to these skeptics. The name is Salalponis. Salalponis or Hatzlalponis, with a hay in front of it. Uh, this, in the Farshim, show that, according to the Midrash, because the Midrash, the Midrash says that his wife came from the tribe of Yehuda, and we find that name hidden in Ksuvim, Divrei Hayomim, and that she was apparently a very important person. So important that the angel appeared before her rather than her husband. But though her husband too saw the angel, but the angel first came to her. Now, what is important in a name? Obviously, it takes a great person to be Zohar, to have an angel appear before them. Let's take the case of Manoach, for example. Ivaris says in Erevin that when Manoach's wife saw the angel a second time, she summoned her husband, and her husband followed his wife. Ayelach Manoach Achreishto. Manoach followed his wife. The Gemara says there that Manoach was an Am Ha'aretz, because a man does not follow a woman. A woman should have the man, the husband, as the leader, unless he is an Am Ha'aretz. The Gemara disproves that by saying it does not mean literally follow her. It means he followed her advice. Uh, it's interesting to note that in the Musaf of the Shabbos Shmona Esrei, we have Tikanta Shabbos. In that paragraph, there's a sentence there. Yes, Musaf Yom HaShabbos Hazeh. The parentheses you have Yom HaShabbos HaManoach Hazeh. Manoach in that case means Benucha. 
Shabbos day of rest. The Arizal says that that word should be skipped as a symbol, as a sign to remember it, because Manoach, the Gemara says, was an Amharetz. We don't use the word that represents Amharetz and the Shabbos Shmon Esrei. So we skip that word, we say, Yisiyam Shabbos Hazeh. Then the Arizal says, though the Gemara states that Manoach was an Amharetz, he was some Amharetz. He had to see an angel, or a very, very great Sadiqim in future generations who never was Zohar at all, to even hear the voice of an angel. You should both see and hear an angel, imagine how holy he was, actually. So that Manoah's status, we could say, was probably the greatest person alive, the greatest Sadiq alive at that time. His wife was even still greater, she was the Tzadikas at that time. And therefore, these represented his wife. A woman, a female, always represents the Shekhinah. Because just as in heaven we have Hashem, the king, the Shekhinah is called the bride of Hashem, like the Shabbos, Shabbos is called the Shekhinah, the spirit of Hashem, Shabbos Malkasah, the Shekhinah, the bride, Kaviyachal, we use that term as the Keva, female. So the Shekhinah is always called the female terms, the bride. Shabbos Kawa, Boi Chawa. Shabbos, the bride, the Shekhinah. And this is the remez, the hint in this name. What does Hatzlal Ponis mean? It has no actual meaning, it seems. Yet this word is Bigimatria Shabbos. To show that she was the Tzadikis, she stood for the Malka, the queen, the representation of the Shekhinah in that generation. And therefore, it was fitting that she should give birth to the new leader of the Jews, the Shimshon. Now, again, the result points out that when Manoach asked the Malach, the angel, to eat something, to accept some food, the angel was very vehement about this. He refused so strongly, to strong terms, he said, if you dare to offer me food, I will absolutely reject it. Why was the angel so stubborn? Or why was he so frightened at the thought of eating? Rizal reveals that when a Malach comes down to earth, he leaves the heavenly realm, the pleasures of heaven, comes down to a world that is very low, very filled with tumor and impurity. Malach is pure and heavenly. And it's very difficult for a Malach to purify himself, to be able to return to heaven properly. So he has to go through a purification process just as a regular soul goes through the fires of Gehenna, cleanse itself of the stains of its sins. So too does a Malach go through a mikveh. A mikveh is water. It is a mikveh of fire. Mahar Dinur, a river of heavenly fire, where the Malach purifies himself of the impurities of earth. But that's if he is fortunate in getting back. If a Malach causes himself materialize, to become Gashmi, become physical in a sense, then he is penalized and that he must stay on earth for a much longer period of time. Uh, the Malachim who came to Avraham Avinu and there ate, partook of the food of Avraham, that means that they became like human beings in the fact that they ate. They were punished that they had to stay on earth for many years. This Malach was the last of those three who visited Avram Avinu, because he had eaten then, he stayed for so many generations, this was his final chance at the time of coming to return to heaven. 
And therefore he was petrified at the thought when Noah offered him food. He said, I've been here so many years, so many generations. How could I dream of eating now and losing my opportunity to return? This was the reason why the Malach so strongly objected to partaking of any food. It gives us an insight into what angels are like, a small insight, of course, we'll learn much more about them later on. Now, we come to the actual birth of Shemshon. Well, he was born, keep in mind the fact that he was born as a Nazir Elohim. Before we go into the actual story, let's first clarify what was Shimshon famous for? The world knows about Shimshon and the sense and the powerful Shimshon Hagibor, who was extremely strong, mighty Shimshon, and whose strength lay in the secret of his long hair. There are many fallacies in reference to that statement, of course. Hair does not make a person strong. In fact, long hair weakens a person. Find the case of King David's son of Shalom, who was trapped by his long hair. We know that long hair is a sign of impurity, tumor. According to the Torah, persons are warned constantly about, that is, men, constantly against wearing long hair for various reasons. For one thing, it's a direct transgression, a mitzvah of Yubashkever, a man should never attempt to look like a woman. And long hair is a woman's garb. So as far as that, that itself constitutes a wrong, a sinful act. Aside from that, the hair is directly connected to the brain. This, Rabbeinu speaks about at length, and says if there, a man has long hair, it slows the process of his thinking, so that we see where he is affected mentally too. Third and most important, if a person has long hair, and this draws to him all types of evil spirits which make his hair their dwelling place. Now, if you use a microscope, you will not see these evil spirits. They are invisible, it is true. But we certainly have complete faith in the words of the Torah. The Torah says they are there. If the person's cranium is filled with tumor, then it certainly is so, especially when the tzaddikim warn us about that. And that's why we find that the holiest of the people, those who served in the base of Mikdash, Levium, had to have their heads shaven. And that's why, too, women have to have their heads covered, those who are married, because it stands also for a type of tumor, in a different sense, in erva. This should be enough of an incentive for every person, every man, every male, to remove from himself this obstruction, mental obstruction and obstruction to Kedusha first step in purifying oneself mentally and spiritually is to see that there is no tumor in the most important part of his body, part that houses the brain, which in turn houses the main part of the neshama, the soul. Now, in the case of Shimshon, certainly his strength had not come from the long hair. The strength came from the mitzvah of obeying the laws of Nazir. What was this strength actually? It was not physical strength. It was that being a Nazir of Hashem, the spirit of Hashem itself rested upon him. The spirit of Hashem rested upon him. It gave him a heavenly sphere, a heavenly aura, rather than a physical one. So that if he had to perform any act, no matter how difficult it was, 
For him, it was as simple as an angel doing so. And this Shekhinah would rest upon him as long as he obeyed these two rules, not to drink wine and not to cut his hair. If at any time he would cut his hair or drink wine, either one of the two, he would lose his strength because the Shekhinah would depart. It wasn't a question just of finding out the secret and of having his hair cut. If the story had turned out where he had been given wine to drink and he had drunk it, it would have resulted in the same loss of strength the Shekhinah would have left him. So again, it's not the hair that was a secret of his strength, it was the Shekhinah, the spirit of Hashem, resting upon him. Now, the birth of Shimshon, he began in his youth to recognize the sufferings of the Jews, and he began to make plans. He possessed a tremendous amount of courage aside from the strength and a desire to help his people. So one day he met a girl, a young girl, who was apparently a girl of beauty and brains, combination of both. She had one fault, though, in that she was a Philistine. She was not Jewish. And he desired her. He told his parents about this girl he wants to marry her. His parents were shocked. And they said, you, who have all the qualities that any girl could ever desire, you can get the best girl among the entire Jewish people. Why do you have to go to the Philistines for a wife? And he insisted. They did not realize that his intentions really were to give him an opening, a chance to play a trick, to begin with, to start up with the Philistines. He wanted to do it in a manner where they would know it was his own doing and not as a messenger of the Jews. They would not attack the Jews rather than attacking him. He wanted to place his life in jeopardy rather than to risk the lives of the Jews. This was a trick on his part. He called his parents with him to visit this girl in her parents to arrange for the wedding date. They went along with him and on the road he noticed from a distance that there was a young powerful lion coming towards him. He motioned his parents to move off to a side road. They shouldn't see this. As the lion sprang at him, he took the lion, grabbed him by the mouth, and without going into any difficult wrestling match, without exerting himself, he simply held the lion at the top of his mouth in the lower part of the jaw and tore him into two. There was no difficulty in doing this because this was not a chore or shimshon. It was simple and light. Then he placed the two parts of the body on the side of the road and left. He forgot about this. He came to the home of his intended bride with his parents. They arranged for a date for the wedding and they returned back home. Later on, he went to visit his bride again he passed by the place where the body of the lion was. He noticed in the body of the lion there was a hive of bees making honey. He took some of the honey and began to eat it while walking along, and his mind formulated a plan. He came to the wedding arrangements. This was a seven-day feast. The father of the bride was very pleased to have a son-in-law like Shimshon, Gemara says he was very handsome, he was very well built, he had a V-shaped figure, very attractive to everyone, and they had a big affair arranged. The father had invited 30 men, 30 guests, or 
his best friends. When Shimshon saw them, he told them, I have a challenge for you. I will offer you a riddle, and if you can answer my riddle within the seven-day period, then I will buy each one of you an overcoat plus a uniform, a set of clothes, that is. Thirty sets of clothes for you, one for each one. If at the end of the seven days you cannot answer my riddle, then you must in turn give me a set of clothes each. I receive thirty. It's true that I'll get more than you. I'll have 30 against each one of you. I'll have one if you win, but it'll cost me more if I lose. I'll have to pay 30 myself. Each one of you just pays one. So it's a fair bet. Answer the riddle within seven days. You win. If you don't, I win. The riddle is a very simple one. The wording of the riddle was, From he that eats, comes forth that which is eaten, from that which is powerful comes forth that which is sweet. Now this riddle too, that's all it mentions in the Navi, and of course seems very simple, very obvious, in referring to the body of a lion. A lion is one that eats others. From this lion that eats came forth honey that is eaten, from the lion that is powerful came forth that which is sweet. So it seems simple. Yet again, let's delve into this in a much deeper sense. Here we shall turn to the Zohar Kadosh, which discusses this riddle. First, the end of the story in this case was that the 30 men secretly turned to the bride, took her aside, and told her, you will speak to your husband, your intended husband, Shimshon, and you're going to persuade him to reveal the answer to this riddle, the solution. Well, if you don't, we're going to set fire to your home and burn down your home and your father and you alive. That's your alternative. She came to Shushan, she cried, she pleaded with him. She said, if you really care for me, you'll tell me you wouldn't keep secrets from me. And he told her the answer to the riddle. She, in turn, transmitted it to these 30 men. At the end of the seven days, just before sundown, they came up with the answer. Their answer was, they laughed and said, it's so simple. From that which is powerful comes that which is sweet. Simple. What is more powerful than a lion? What is sweeter than honey? There's the answer to your riddle. Shimshon said to them, if you had not worked on my bride, my little calf, as he called her, you could never have gotten the answer to my riddle. You have it. I owe you 30 sets of clothes. You got it illegally, the answer. I'll get you the clothes in the same way. He ran out. He saw a troop of 30 Philistine soldiers. With one blow, he felled them, stripped them of their clothes, came back and gave the clothes to these 30 men. And then he said, no, I am free. I've been double-crossed. I don't have to go through with this wedding. I'm going home. I'm angry. So he left. A long time later, he decided to return for a second round. Let's go back to the riddle itself. To elaborate on this, there's a story in the Zohar Kodosh where two of the students of Rabbi Shimon ben were walking along the road in the Galil, and they saw at a distance an old man riding on a mule, 
And next to this old man was walking a child. The child was about five years old. As they came closer, they heard the old man say to the child, we're traveling together, tell me what Pasuk did you learn in the Chumash recently? Something you learned. The child said, you want to learn from me? Fine. Get off the mule, let me ride on the mule, and I'll teach you. It's not fair that the student should ride on the mule and the teacher should be walking. The old man said, that I won't do. The child said, you want to learn and you want to ride the mule? You can't have both. Forget it. And the child walked away. The two rabbis who saw this looked at the child and they saw this child was no ordinary child. They could see a flame in this child's eyes. A child known in the Zorah Kodesh as the Yanuka. Now, many times, many stories told about this Yanuka. He was the child of Rav Hamnuna Sava, one of the great rabbis at that time, close friend of Rabbi Shemayechoizal, who had passed away. And this was his son, who was born retaining all his faculties of before. He had been a very great tzaddik, very learned Talmud Chacham. He was born with all the knowledge he had in the previous life. In other words, this was a Gilbul reincarnation. Now, this child, this Yunuka, was so learned that when he started to speak words of Torah to these two rabbis, Rita Yitzchak, they were amazed because they saw he knew more than they did. They listened enraptured, and they offered this child food. He was very hungry. Yunuka ate the food, and he began to tell them certain laws about Birkas Amozo, laws dinner about benching. Very deep laws and deep thoughts of all secrets about the benching, the words of the benching, what they stood for, and in general, heavenly secrets. These two rabbis said about this child, we could say, Because of the food we gave this child, we are being fed now, heavenly type of food, Torah knowledge, and we see that from the Az, as the powerful Luna Savod, came forth a child who delivered such sweet words of Torah. The child said to these two rabbis, as long as you touched upon this Pasuk, the riddle of Shimshon, why not go into a little deeper? So they said to him, you're the rabbi here. You probably have a much deeper insight. Reveal some of this to us. The child said, fine. What these words really mean, what Shimshon meant to say what these words was, that the Gemara says that Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, one of the students of Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai, was so great a tzaddik that every day a voice came from heaven and said, every person in this world is being fed, is being given livelihood, is being nourished only because of the mitzvahs of Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa. So great a tzaddik is he. And in general, this goes, of course, throughout each generation. It's the zechus of tzaddikim that gives parnasa, livelihood, and nourishment to the world. The zechus of a tzaddik, because Hashem maintains and sustains mankind only because of the tzaddik. The tzaddik yesod olam. The tzaddik is the foundation of the world, the sustenance of the world. Tzaddik is the only one who is called Ochel, one who eats properly. Because the Tzaddik eats for the sake of satisfying his Nishama, not for the sake of his physical being. So the true Ochel is the Tzaddik. Ochel, Machal, all the food that's found in this world comes out through this Tzaddik, the Zechus of this Tzaddik.
And what does this Sadiq give forth? He gives forth the true food, besides the, the Shetva, the food that comes from heaven, to feed a person physically, the Tzaddik feeds the world, the Jews, with his knowledge of Torah. The Torah is divided into two parts. There's the written Torah, Torah Shebik Sav, and the Torah Shebal Peh, the oral Torah. That is the Chumash, the Novi, the Tanakh, the written Torah, and the Gemara, which is the Torah Shebal Peh. Uh, the Pasuk says, Hashem Oz Liyamo Yitain. Hashem gave to the Jews Oz, which is the written Torah, Torah Shebik Sav. Then, from this Tanakh, from this written Torah, there comes forth the words of the rabbis, the sages, the Gemara, Torah Shabbat Peh, which is called Masot Sweet, as King David calls it. The sweetness, Masukim, Vashvacholov, Tachas Lashonech, so that may as Torah Shabbat written Torah, Yotza, Masot, comes forth the sweetness of Torah Shabbat Peh. These two are actually united. You cannot separate the two because they make up a perfect match. They make up one organism. The Torah Shemik Sav is called the male part of the Torah, just as Hashem, Zerampin Hashem is called Torah Shemik Sav, and the Torah Shemik is called the Shekhinah, the Malchus, the female part. And that's why it's called, the reason is why it's called Dvash. From this as comes forth Devash, because Devash stands for the female. The word Devash, or honey, is Begimetria Isha. That's the female, the Malka, the queen, the bride, part of the Torah. So that's what the Yenuka said from this Torah Shavik The king comes forth the queen, just as Chava came forth from Adam. So too in Kedusha also, the female comes from the male. The female part of the Torah is the Gemara that comes from the, the written Torah. This is what Shimshon referred to, and of course, they took it literally for physical matter with the, the case of the lion, the honey. And of course, again, this was used only as a ruse, a trick on the part of Shimshon to, to incite them, to give him reason to do battle with them. And so his first act was to give them these 30 suits of clothing and this meant nothing to him, killing those first 30 men. He went back, bided his time. While he left, his intended father-in-law felt that Shimshon was so angry he'd never return. He had no alternative, so he gave this bride to a different man, a Philistine, for a wife. Now she was married. Shimshon waited, came back, acting very innocently, knocked on the door of his father's father-in-law's home, intended father-in-law, unintended father-in-law, and he asked for his bride. Father-in-law was frightened, and he said, he stammered, he said, I, I thought you were so angry because your wife had betrayed you, the bride had betrayed you, that you never wanted to see her again. I gave her to somebody else. But I have a younger daughter who's much nicer. Perhaps you'll want her. Jim Shaw said, I don't take anyone else. I wanted her, and now you've given me a real reason to be angry. The fact that my bride has been taken away, now I can go out and really do harm to the Philistines. They caused this. He went out and he went loosely, just striking each one he found, killed a large number of Philistines, and left. Philistines were curious what causes rampage. Why did Shimshon go wild? They found out that his 
previously intended father-in-law had married off his intended bride to someone else, they said that really was a crime. We have to appease him. They came to the house of this father-in-law, set fire to the home, and burnt, killed the father-in-law and the bride together. Shimshon heard about this. He said, my formerly intended bride was killed by the Philistines. Now I'm really justified in going after them. So he went out, and his first act was to gather up 300 foxes, tied two tails together, 150 pairs of foxes, placed a burning torch in the tails, and set these foxes in the direction of the fields of the Philistines. And of course, this destroyed their crops, did untold damage. Now the Philistines were out for war. This was too much. Kill them, it's not so good. Destroy their crops, that's bad. So they came to they came to the tribe of Yehuda in the city of Lachi, and they said, We want you to surrender Shimshon to us. Get Shimshon, tie him up securely, bring him to us. We cannot capture him ourselves. We want you to capture him. Now, if you don't surrender him to us, then we're going to wipe out every man, woman, and child in this city. Take your choice. And they waited. The people of Yehuda searched out Shimshon. They came to him, and they said, We've come to take you. We are forced to take you. We must surrender you to the Philistines, because they have threatened our lives. Shimshon was frightened. He said to them, I, I'll go with you. Tie me, but you first must promise me that you will not hurt me, because I have no defense against you. If I was to battle Philistines, Goyim, I have no problem. I can strike out, lash out at them freely. But if you should try to harm me, if you try to kill me, what can I do? I can never raise my hand against the Jew. So you must promise me under oath that you will not do me any harm. I'll allow you to tie me and hand me over to the Philistines. This the Jews promised, and they brought him to the place where the Philistines were waiting. Now, the first question brought here in Halacha, Shechanach is, and brought to the Mishnah, a number of places, Noholos, Trumos, especially the Mishnah Trumos, the Mishami says that a case where the enemy, the Goyim, come to a city, a Jewish city, and they tell the Jews, we want you to surrender to us one Jew, we'll kill that Jew, and the rest of you remain alive. We don't surrender one Jew as a scapegoat, we're going to kill every single Jew in this city. Let's say there are 10,000 Jews there. If they surrender one Jew, the rest of them live. They don't, every one of the 10,000 dies, including that Jew whom they refuse to surrender. There's actually no gain for that one, plus the fact that they're saving the lives of 10,000 people. What is the din in that case? The din is then that every one of the 10,000 Jews must die. They have no right to take the life of a Jew into their hands. They cannot surrender that one Jew. In this case, then the question arises, how did the Jews here have a right, 3,000 Jews whose lives were at stake, how do they have a right to surrender Shimshon to the hands of the Philistines? As far as they were concerned, this meant certain death for Shimshon. How can they save their lives at the, at the expense of Shimshon's life? And here the Shulchan Aruch says, the Aruch of course explains too the case of Zimri, 
that if the demand of the Goyim was not give us one Jew, any Jew, the rest will be saved, that of course they could not do. But if they pointed out one person specifically, give us this one certain person, or else you all die, then it's not the Jews who are putting this person to death, it's the Goyim who have named him. They have branded him as a victim. If they gave no name at all, that means that the Jews are acting as judge, jury, and deciding the life of a Jew. In this case, if the person is pointed out by the Goyim, they may surrender him to the Goyim. So in this case, Shimshon was designated as the victim, therefore they were committed to surrender Shimshon. Well, they brought Shimshon to this meeting place, and they left. As the Philistines came out in triumph to greet their captive, his hands were very securely bound with heavy ropes. He just flipped his hands and the ropes snapped right off. And this was in a desert area. He saw the cheekbone of a mule, remained the skeleton of a mule. He picked up this cheekbone and he used this as a weapon, not to soil his hands. And he killed 1,000 Philistines with this cheekbone. And he sang a song about this, that with the cheekbone of a mule, I have killed a 1,000 men. He threw the cheekbone away, and he started to walk back. He found himself in a desert. He was very thirsty. As he walked, the sun beat down upon him. He became very faint. He fell to the ground, and he saw that his life was really in danger now. He began to doubt and to pray to Hashem, and said, Hashem, what is the use of all these miracles I've had until now, if I've got to die of thirst now in the desert? Therefore, I pray for assistance from heaven. Here, a major miracle occurred because in the desert there's nothing but the best as a rock. There are no wells in the desert. Certain isolated places we have oases. This was a dry desert, arid area. There was one rock there, and that rock split. A stream of water came out from which he drank, and the strength was returned to him. This was a miracle that resembled the miracle that the Jews had in the desert with Moshe Rabbeinu in the rock. This is the outstanding miracle in the time of Shimshon's life. Aside from the ones he performed with the spirit of Hashem upon him. With this water to give him renewed vigor, he turned back to the land of the Jews, to his own home, and settled down working on a new plan for attack against the Philistines. The Philistines by now were fully aware of his strength and were very wary and watchful, made plans to defend themselves and to somehow get to Shimshon to destroy that one person which would give them complete control over the Jews. The next chapter will deal with the ensuing story of Shimshon and the most important part of the story, Shimshon and Delilah, the secrets behind that story. Many that are revealed to us in the Zohar Kodesh too. Above all, again, the story here we learn, the moral of the story for us is a fact that at all times the emuna in Hashem, emuna in its adikim, is what sustains Jews throughout all generations. To this day, if we would strengthen ourselves in faith in Hashem and its adikim, we'd certainly be zochah to see.